over the years, I got these four guides, which were tell the truth, face your fears, stay in the moment, and open up to love. Welcome back to the podcast. We took last week off, but I am back with a new episode from Australia. This was not recorded here. I'm actually about to record an episode with my friend here, which will be coming soon. This was recorded a couple months ago. I went to California to this organic farm. If you've maybe been to Cafe Gratitude, the restaurant, you maybe know that they have their own farm and previous podcast guest john morrow a couple of my friends actually introduced me to this wonderful woman who's today's guest tiercy who you're going to hear all about it's such a rich conversation she's someone who's so wise and brilliant and nurturing and i gush about her throughout this episode so i want to get to it as quickly as possible but It was genuinely one of the best experiences of 2019, and I'm really glad I get to share it with you guys in this interview. So that's this week's episode, but I just wanted to give you a quick update. I finally left Bali. It feels like I was there forever. I'm now in Byron Bay staying with my lovely friends. It's raining, and I'm reflecting about where I was a year ago. It's Valentine's Day week. So I'm wishing you the most nurturing, romantic, soothing, lovely day or week. And I'm sitting here in the rain in Byron Bay at my friend's house, thinking about where I was a year ago at this time. It's summer here in Australia. And if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you might remember that episode. It was my breakups episode where I told you guys that I had broken up with my partner and I was upstate with my best friend, Sasha Jones, and she kind of whisked me away, took me upstate to this like nurturing Valentine's week camp. And we ate a lot of soup and I cried a lot. I made a lot of really sad collages and I had the idea for making something to help people about breakups because I just felt so broken up and I didn't know what to do. Ironically, Sasha is a wedding officiant, but she is also the person who gives me the best advice in my life. And it was the perfect place to be. And I daydreamed about maybe someday making something that could help people, but I really had no idea what to do and cut to over not over a year, under a year later, I made the Soothe Kit, which is everything that I picked up and learned over the last year. Maybe some of you have already used it. Maybe you've sent it to a friend who feels like a raw nerve, sensitive to everything right now. But since this month might be a little bit more charged for the tender-hearted folks that listen to this podcast and anyone who might be heartbroken, I want to make the Soothe Kit 
free. It's usually $9, but right now, if you're listening to this and would like it or find it useful to you, use the code in the checkout, Valentine, and it will be free and it will get delivered to you or you can send it to a friend. I just want it to be accessible and available to everyone who needs it. Enjoy every ounce of this episode filled with so much wisdom and story from Tiercy. And I'll talk to you at the end. I have a bit of an announcement. I want to tell you what I made while I was in Bali. And I'm really excited to share that. So talk to you soon. Enjoy. This week's episode is brought to you by Cure Nutrition, a holistic supplement company based in Boulder, Colorado. And if you're like me, liking organic hemp-derived CBD products, I'm sure you're already familiar with them. They make these full-spectrum tinctures and treats that work with your body's natural systems to produce clear benefits without the worry of the psychoactive component. They have this really great in-house farm-to-table business model, and I got to meet them when I was in Boulder, Colorado, and they're just really lovely people. CBD is most commonly incorporated to help improve sleep, decrease inflammation, it can help reduce the stress load. And the CEO of Cured actually used the raw oil to ease his puppy's anxiety. So you can actually use these products with dogs as well. They even have dog treats and and nibbles for dogs as well. I love this company. Their cookie dough snack is one of my favorites and they're really just wonderful people. Each cured product is third-party tested for potency and purity, and it doesn't have any of the harmful contaminants like pesticides or heavy metals. And they even have all of their ingredients with full transparency published on their website. So the link's in the show notes. And if you want to try them out, again, they can help with sleep and anxiety and inflammation. And I just, I really enjoy the variety of products they have. They have so many things. They have topical things. They have mushroom blends. They have a nootropic. They have a nighttime blend that I really like. They have, of course, their oils and tinctures and they have a mint flavor. I really like their snacks and their gel caps. They're, they just really, they got, they got everything. So if you want to try them, you can get 15% off your order by using the code LETITOUT at checkout. Again, that's 15% off your order using the code LETITOUT. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for the invitation. I'm I'm so glad that I get to, I was just saying this to you before we started recording, but it's it's really nice to just get to sit down one-on-one with someone. And I've been here on your beautiful farm and gotten to talk to you in bits and pieces, but it's nice to really get to have a moment with you here. It's interesting because it's actually my favorite thing. So while I spend a lot of time in big groups, mm-hmm. um, my favorite is like one-on-one. Really? Yeah. Most people don't know that. <laughs> yeah. You seem, I, w- I was going to say this anyway, you seem like someone who, which I love and I really admire and is very expansive to me of what I want to be and become, which is someone who is such a wonderful host and so welcoming and nurturing. And, you know, my dream is to have people around and nourish people in this way. And you do that so beautifully. Have you, have you always been that way? Oh, that's such a great question. You know, when I look back, my, I came from a military family. Mm -hmm. So my dad was a pilot and we're talking in the fifties. I was born in the fifties. And so my mom you know, was like a military wife and did a lot of hosting. But 
from the time I have two older sisters and from the time that I can remember, we like served at their parties, you know, we did the polish the silverware before people came and set up and serve and clean up. Like we were kind of born into hospitality really. So it had like its early impressions on Mm -hmm. me. And then I also spent a lot of time in my life as a single parent and I waited tables during those years because of the flexibility, the ability to, you know, be with my kids in the morning, get them off to school, be there after school. And then they were settled in for the night and I could work nights in like fine restaurants. And I also was super poor. And so for me, it was like, wow, I get to go to some of the best parties on the planet and I don't have to buy the food or the expensive wine. I don't have to worry about what I'm going to wear. And I get to show up and be at some of the best parties in the world because for me, serving and hosting is just, it's kind of like being at a party with a purpose. Totally. And so the party's even more fun. Yeah. Which know? is kind of nice because it takes away the awkwardness and the like yeah. as someone who's like always in my head and anxious and thinking of like, am I okay? Yeah. It's nice. To, I was thinking about that a lot actually this weekend. We should say mm. for the people listening, I'm I'm here with you at your beautiful home and mm. farm and harvesting olives and <laughs> eating amazing food and getting to hang out with you and your family. And it's so lovely. But I've had so many moments where I'm like, I feel like I'm at this really wonderful camp. Am I okay? Am I being awkward? Am I like, am I allowed to be here? Which is like old stuff from from childhood. I I know, but I think it's just interesting of like, being a person's hard and there's a lot of overthinking and there's a lot of, I think mm. as I get older, I kind of soften into who I am, mm. but it's, it's still there. And, and as we were harvesting the olives, I was like, it's really nice to like, I can talk to people and tap in and out of conversations, but like I'm occupied mm-hmm. <laughs> with the olives and mm. that felt, it, it feels like you can kind of go closer and, and get deeper with people going back to being mm. one-on-one. It can be hard to feel seen and recognized in a group mm-hmm. and one-on-one it's easier to connect mm-hmm. for me yeah me too and I, and i think too it's so beautiful what you say katie because you know how i perceive my role as a host is have people feel at home mm-hmm. and oftentimes what comes up for people is that chatter or that Am I doing enough? Am I enough? How do I fit in? Where's my place? That oftentimes goes all the way back to their upbringing and their family homes. And then here it's like- or school Yeah, or exactly. And here it's like you get to have another experience of integrating and being loved like just the way you are. Like really we have all kinds of people come through here. And for most people, I think being on our farm feels a bit like an exhale, like- Oh, okay. It's it's all good, yeah. you know, which is really our intention. Yeah. Yeah. And so just like working kind of gives you a sense of purpose while you're here. For me, serving gives me a sense of purpose. And yeah. I think it does diminish that experience of how do I fit in? Because service is, in my view, it's a high calling and it it's also considered oftentimes a lowly position. And yet, you know, it's how I am perceiving it that gives me my sense of 
comfort and belonging because I love to wait on people. I, yeah. I love it. It's so interesting. The it's a reframe, I guess. Like mm-hmm. to hear you talk about your time waiting tables and in fancy restaurants. Like, have you ever watched the show Sweet Bitter or read no. the book? I think no, you would, would love it. Now. Okay. It's this author, Stephanie Danler, wrote this. It's not a memoir, but she worked in restaurants in New York City mm. and was a writer and then wrote a novel about working in restaurants mm. in New York City. And it became a TV show, which I love, both of them. And this world that she conveys in her work and in the in the show is so, it really feels like that. It feels like a party. It feels like the connection mm. of the people who all work there. And mm-hmm. I look at that as like something that I would really want to do. And mm-hmm. as you were speaking, that's kind of what I kept making the connection in my mind. But depending on your perspective, there are people who can, you can, you, it shows that you can kind of love and change any situation when you surrender to it. And you're just like, this is, how can I make this great? Yeah. How, there, I wrote this book about journaling and there's a, a prompt in it about make any situation great. Mm-hmm. And like how to, it's essentially like how to make a reframe mm-hmm. of what you're in to, to feel better. So when you were in that, when you were working in restaurants and young and a single mom, I'm sure there were many tough moments, mm-hmm. but were you really able to do that reframe and feel that way like you were at a party while you were in mm-hmm. it? Or is that a perspective you've taken since? No, that was my perspective then. It was like I was getting ready to go to a party. It was my framework for yeah, waiting tables and serving was I get to go to the best party in the whole world and I don't have to arrange it, pay for it, get an invitation. I get to throw it. I get to throw the party and make sure. And that was just how I saw it. But it's interesting because I think, you know, I'm writing my own Uh story of my life right now. And so a lot's coming up for me. And I can see how what you're talking about as a reframe, I can see how I became a master of that. But really, it came through trauma for me because... I was a competitive athlete on an Olympic track, and then I was sexually abused at 16 and kept it a secret for 20 years, so 16 to 36, where I lived with you know anorexia and then ultimately bulimia to survive. And then at 36, I had my kind of wake up, line in the sand, you know, spiritual enlightenment, whatever. I had my moment, but in writing this story, I can see how I became the ma- a master of making the best out of situations that weren't really in order to survive. And while it, it saved my life, and, you know, there's also that side of the kind of sadness of there wasn't some place where I could feel safe enough to be honest or to be able to share at that level. So for me, it's kind of been a double-edged sword because it's been, yeah, I can hide behind a pretense and live, but now I'm at this amazing place in life where life is really the transparency of that. Mm-hmm. It's I have so many questions for you. I don't even know where to go next, but... I love that you're sharing this and that I'm sure writing your book and writing your story is so cathartic, like therapy going yeah. through it, I think is really useful. And the concept of, of let it out, it's called let it out because I believe whatever we hold on to hurts us and sharing what I call soft stories. So things that are 
challenging, that are intimate, that are maybe hurtful, soften us. And when we share them, it makes us all feel connected and, mm-hmm. and less alone. And and it sounds like the way that you are able to reframe things in your life and the gratitude that you have now and the life that you have now is a direct result of, of all of that. So I, I have more questions about it. So when you, your family was in the military, so does that mean you grew up all over? Where did yep. you? Yep. Yeah. I was born in Ohio. Okay. And then, no wonder I like you. You're Midwestern <laughs> like me. I was born in Ohio. And then, you know, we went to Coronado shortly thereafter. And uh, I think I just calculated for my book. I think I went to seven schools in wow. 12 years. So we went to Coronado and then we went to Cuba. So I lived in Cuba pre-Castro in the 50s. And then we went to England and I went to a girl's school outside London. And then we went to Carmel. Um, and so we were in Carmel, Monterey. And then after Carmel, Monterey, we went to Santa Clara. And then after Santa Clara, then I ended up, that was where the abuse happened. And so my life kind of, the, the whole series then of me entering into you know, my own independent adult life. And then I married someone who went into the military. Then I, w- then I flew for the airlines. So then I lived in New York and then I you lived were- I, a flight attendant. Yeah. So I flew for the airlines for a few years. And then ultimately I married someone who became a pilot, uh, a flight engineer for the military. And then we moved back and forth again. So I've just, I've moved a lot wow. in my life. What do you think living in all of those places taught you? Um, I, I think it taught me how to get close to people quickly. So the ability to kind of be in almost any environment and be able to connect with people quickly because oftentimes, you know, as a child, I didn't have that long to build friendships before we would leave. And then I think it also taught me how to let go, how to be able to not be so attached. And sometimes I would see those people again based on, you know, what our parents' orders were and where we went. Sometimes I would meet up with those people again. But I think it it taught me to have, you know, a bigger view than just one group of people. Yeah. That would be the positive side of what it taught me. (laughs) And I would say on the darker side is there's an element of, you know, when people have lived in one place for a long time, they go through things together. So they go through difficulties or phases in, you know, growing up and they come out the other side of it together. I didn't have that experience because for me, it was always starting new. Like, even going to a new school, you know, I went to a lot of new schools and oftentimes mid-year, but probably a, a certain comfort, a certain comfort around discomfort. Yeah. You know? Resiliency. Yeah, definitely. I'm, people would say I'm resilient. Yeah. <laughs> so you're the youngest of, of three yeah. then? Yeah. And my oldest sister's already passed away. So there's just myself and my middle sister. So what were you like as a kid? Were you close with your parents? Did you, do you remember what you wanted to be when you grew up? So remember, I was born in the 50s, right? Right. We didn't have all the options you have today. So, you know, for me, I was like happy-go-lucky, high energy, funny, active, super active. Um, You know, I loved to eat. I was a chubby little baby, little girl. And I loved doing things with other people, like 
that's still my preference, like doing something alone. Like, why would I do that when I can do it with someone? I love sharing. And then what was you asked me? What was I like as a little girl? Oh, my parents. So I was, I would say I had amazing parents. You know, my mother was a very strong-willed kind of perfectionist and oftentimes had to be because my father would deploy often. So there would just be my mother oftentimes in a strange place, like She's lived in Guam. She's lived in Cuba. She, you know, she'd moved around a lot herself and with the three of us. And so it was really important for her to be strong and also resilient. Yeah, very resilient. My mother was massively resilient, massively talented. She could kind of do almost anything. But she was also, there was an element of her that I would say was kind of mistrustful. And she just ran a tight. She ran a tight ship, so to speak, you know, it was, and my dad was patient and kind and loving and fair, but he also wasn't always there. And he was also very quiet. My father was super quiet and I would say he was much more introverted. I understood, I understood near the end of his life why, but we never really knew why before my mother, my mother really ran the show and ran the house. Do you think that was, that sounds like it was sort of the time I think it was. I think it was a different time. You know, it was a different military. It was a different time. Mm -hmm. And yep. So you said you were an athlete. Mm -hmm. What was your talk to me about that period of time? So I was was a swimmer. Okay. Um, I I knew you were going to say that. I don't know why. (laughs) When you said you're an athlete, I was wondering what it was and I knew it was going to be swimming. (laughs) I don't know why. Yeah. I was a swimmer and I started in. I, you know, the story in our family is I swam before I walked because I just, I, I was one of those babies that just took to water. Mm-hmm. And I grew up swimming competitively. I started competing when I was eight in speed swimming. But then I transitioned to synchronized swimming oh, around cool. 12. You know, I think I, I first started synchronized, synchronized swimming. swimming was so cool. Yeah, it was very great. Well, this wasn't the early de- years of it. It wasn't an Olympic sport wow. yet. But I did synchronized swimming and that was also... I moved, I lived away from home in order to be on a better team with a better coach. So that had an impact. Like in my, I left my high school in Carmel and went to Santa Clara in order to swim with the coach in Santa Clara. I lived with another swimming family and their mother in Santa Clara. And then my parents sold their house and moved up. And then I went back in with my parents. And that is the time frame which kind of all of this happened. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And so I was away from home and then I was back in my So it was home. living with that other family where your sexual abuse happened? No, it was actually a physician. It was actually a, <sighs> no, it so was actually a doctor. That happened. Thank you. Oh, I'm so sorry. So is that what what got you out of swimming? And it was definitely a combination of things because what had me quit swimming was yes, I had originally started trying to lose the weight you know, at, at a coach's suggestion. And then, you know, I couldn't lose the, I couldn't hit the target weight my coach wanted me to. And then I just quit eating in order to try to. And of course we know a lot more now about all of that. We didn't know a lot of that, a lot about that then. And so what the happened was is to get those messages. Yeah. And so what happened was, you know, eventually I started losing weight And then I couldn't start eating again is really how it felt. You know, I just couldn't. And I was also dealing with, you know, the first time I think I'd ever really felt anger like that, you know, at just working so hard to reach a goal. And then when I reached the goal, she says, you need to gain five. And so there was just, you know, for me, 
I was 16 years old and I was probably a young, compared to today's world, a young 16. I wasn't very worldly. You know, I was lived in a pretty protected family environment. And so it was just, I couldn't do then what I was asked to do. And we then lost, that year we lost nationals and the national champion was going to go to audition the Olympic committee to look at sanctioning synchronized swimming as an Olympic sport. And so that was right at the end of my high school. And that was when shortly after that I was hospitalized and that's where then the abuse happened. And that kind of changed from 16 for me to like 18 was a very pivotal time where I was on this track, you know, where I was healthy and happy. And then this series of events happened. And then, you know, before you knew it, I I had a completely different trajectory for my life. Mm. And it's such a, you're such a malleable person during that time Mm. anyway, because your, your brain is still forming and you're, you're so young and you're trying, you're, you're like a a baby of a adult trying Mm. to navigate being a person and to have so many pivotal things happen that it's a tough time anyway, Mm -hmm. and much less to be going through so many different things. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like your your mom and your family, were you able to talk to them about what was going on? No, so that's part of, it was kept, so I didn't, there's a whole series of events that happened that kind Mm -hmm. of led to when the perpetrator said, keep it a secret, he actually had some evidence for no one would believe me. And I believed him that no one would believe me. And so I kept it a secret for 20 years. So no one ever knew. No one ever knew I had an eating disorder until I, you know, 20 years later. So again, I became, I, you know, while we can look at the side and say the sadness around the things that happened to me, then I also became someone who, you know, like lied and hid and cheated and, in order to survive because I lived inside of addiction for 20 years of my life. And that's what, that's what an eating disorder is. You become a very good liar because you're, you put, you have to put that above everything. Yeah. And it just runs your, I mean, I don't, I mean, I know that eating disorders are still there today. I know that they're, they're also more in open, like people have a tendency to know when someone has an eating disorder in my situation, people didn't know. And so I also lived that kind of hidden life. I mean, my name, Tercy, if you look at my name, my birth name is Marsha. So I was born Marsha, but I've been Tercy now for 34 years. This is my 34th year of recovery. And Tercy, if you look at the way it's spelled, it actually spells secret backwards. So part of my recovery was, you know, listening to whatever people call that inner guidance, that wisdom that speaks that is oftentimes beyond comprehension. And so I was told, change my name. And that was actually one of the most difficult things in my recovery I ever did because I was the good girl who did what I was told and, you know, worked hard and wanted to please, you know, my teachers, my coaches, my parents. And so changing my name when I was you know, 36 was not easy to do. I had three children. At that time, I was married to a military officer. And yet it was the most powerful thing I ever did because I had to speak up. I had to tell people like, you know, when when people ask me about my name, it was really like a calling card to share with people my story or at least a piece of my story. And literally every day, still every day, someone asked me about my name 
Every day someone does. So give us the, what do you usually say? Well, it depends on who asks, right? <laughs> what you say to me? It depends on how much time I have. Sometimes I tell people, well, if you look at the way it's spelled, it's spelled mm-hmm. secret because I was a survivor of sexual abuse, but I kept it a secret for 20 years. And then after 20 years, I was guided to rename myself. And it's a reminder to not keep secrets. It's a reminder to live a very transparent and authentic life. Mm. So I don't always go into much depth, but I just let people, and usually people say, whoa, that's amazing. You know, I didn't know that or, because now no one knows me as Marsha. You know, my parent, my one sister is probably, you know, there's a couple cousins, but it's probably, you know, the last people who really knew me as Marsha, but most people have made the transition and well, this is really coming together and the sense of why so many people connected us and wanted oh, us wow. to, to meet because secret and let it out really connect in the, the sense of what I was saying about soft stories of, mm-hmm. I believe pushing down a story, my, my grandma would always say a lie has no legs. It needs uh-huh. additional lies to support it. Mm. And that has forcing myself to tell my story and make everything in my world let it out is about forcing me to be honest and mm. forcing me to be real because I I believe we all want to be seen and loved for who we really are. And if we're seen and loved for a version of ourselves, it doesn't feel as good. Mm-hmm. And by forcing myself to let it out, not hold on to secrets, it allows me to connect and live mm-hmm. this full life, but it's also so much scarier. Yeah. It's also, you know, it's also because not being seen and loved for a version of yourself doesn't hurt as bad than yep. someone actually seeing the real you and not liking that. Well, I think that's why people do lie. I think that's why I did lie. Yeah. You know, it's like, I was so afraid. I was so afraid people to see what was really going on and then be either rejected or whatever that it was easier if people rejected me or whatever my experience might've been, I was like, well, it doesn't really matter. You don't even know who I am. I had this very kind of rote response to myself. Sometimes even like, you know, you're so stupid. You don't even know. You think you know me, but you know nothing about me. Yeah, you were wearing a mask. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's so common. And I think And I'm not like standing here saying that I do this all day, every day. Like I still wear masks and I still feel uncomfortable, but I, I know what it feels like to not, and I know how good it feels (laughs) to be myself. And whenever I can see myself going into like Mm. an automated version of myself, I have a very low tolerance for Mm -hmm. that now. That's great. And I think that's what recovery, that's what, you know, have being authentically present with someone does. So. And I think, you know, that's that's a gift of my addictions, you know, that's a gift of of having, you know, the the experiences that we have mm-hmm. grow pain growing us. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think we learn lessons through and we'll have to learn them again and again yeah. through these sort of difficult things. So tell me what happened into your recovery. What happened after those really challenging years, that's when you met your, your ex-husband, what got you into recovery? So through the, through the years of 16 to 36, so I was actually married three times and divorced three times. My first marriage was with a high school sweetheart. And that was really only one year. And really that was 
I just needed to get out of my family home. And we were both going to college. And so we were really just best friends. So we were married for one year, then I was divorced. And then there were several years and I worked for the airlines and then I got furloughed and then I worked, transferred down to Los Angeles. What was working for the airlines like? It was great. I loved it because I love, I love adventure. I love flying. You know, I loved serving people. So I was uh, 20. Yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing. It was awesome. But I was also dealing with an eating disorder. But I had this kind of dual life. I looked, I looked fine on the outside. I was just dying on the inside. Which is probably, you know, doesn't do your eating disorder any favors. It's a very physically forward job and not as much maybe as being an athlete or similarly, I think there's weight requirements and it's just so that had to just be so challenging. And so I did that. And then I got furloughed, moved to Los Angeles, uh, worked for a dentist while I was furloughed and then met my second husband at an apartment complex and he was a Vietnam vet. And then we got married and he turned out to be somebody who was struggling with heroin addiction coming out of Vietnam. And so really like drugs and alcohol. And, but we were together five years and had two children. We went to Pennsylvania and that's where my first really started farming. And then he went back to live with his brother in Oregon. And I got a job working in a restaurant and I had an 18 month old and I was pregnant. And the bar manager that hired me years later became my third husband. And he's the one that we were in the restaurant business together. And then he joined the military and he's the one that we traveled back from Florida and then Corpus Christi, Texas, and then back to uh, Santa Clara, Mountain View, which is where my recovery started because we were back in the same military establishment and environment where the abuse happened. And so with him, I have my youngest son. So I have two children with one and my youngest. And then I was single for many years after we got divorced. And then Matthew and I got married. So for people who listen and think they're, it's too late, it's too late to start a business. I was 50 when I met Matthew, 52 when we got married. And I didn't start Cafe Gratitude till I was 54. Wow. So yeah, it's like not too late. There's lots of time. Oh my God. Yeah. This is so expansive for me because I've really been feeling this sense of pressure and the mm. sense of, I was talking to John about it yesterday, creatively, mm. like if I don't get it in now, I'm no, not. so not true. Yeah. And it's interesting as you were <laughs> so talking, you are someone who is so wonderful and beautiful and has lived such a full life. And I just keep thinking, like I usually interview people who are not usually, but often my age or or yeah. like I the last guest that did the podcast was the youngest guest I've ever had. And he was 20. And I was just like, I need this show is usually long, but for your story, I feel like I need another <laughs> couple of hours to really dive into this. Yeah. Wow. So that it's it's really cool that you shared that about it not being too late. I want to go into the Matthew chapter and the, it's interesting. I keep thinking of, I watched this movie on the plane. Have you seen the Jane Fonda documentary? No, but I'd love to. It's fantastic. And the way she goes through her life, 
in this documentary or the way the filmmaker does, it's each chapter is a different man that mm-hmm. she was with. Mm-hmm. And I think she's been married f- four or five times. And she talks about who she was within that period. And then the last chapter is Jane. Mm. And I thought that that was so mm, indicative of yeah. life and how yeah, it's interesting. And it, that's definitely my tendency too. I put my addiction in all sorts of places, but I've definitely put it into people and define mm-hmm. myself mm-hmm. by relationships. And then realizing now that I'm the only one that's going to go with me till the mm-hmm. end. That's great. I remember what you asked me before that I didn't answer, yeah. which was what I want to be when I grew oh, up. Oh, yeah, yeah. What was it? <laughs> because when you were talking about Jane Fonda, it came came to me. She's in my era, uh-huh. you know. But all I wanted to do was grow up, get married, and have kids was really what I wanted to do. I didn't have some big aspirations because, you know, I love family. I love kids. I just, that's all I ever wanted to do. And, you know, the three marriages that I had during those years of my addiction, I married addicts. So it's kind of no mystery. It wasn't like I knew, they didn't know I was, I didn't know they were. Yeah. Because addiction is so self-centered and so all-consuming. Yeah. And, you know, your total focus is your own survival. And you don't notice necessarily what's going on out there, although you might think you do. Mm-hmm. And if you marry other people who are struggling with their own addiction, they don't notice so much what's going on with you. Yeah. It doesn't and leave so much room for intimacy because exactly. you're both. Yeah. You're both dealing with whatever you're dealing mm-hmm. with and it's not part of the relationship. Yeah. And know? an addict with a non-addict doesn't even allow for intimacy either because yeah. there's, there's an inability to connect. So talk to me about your recovery. Was it through? So it was pretty great because, so we were back in the same in the same area mm-hmm. where it all started. You have two small, have three, three small children. children. I have three small children, like nine, seven, and four. Okay. Something like that, nine, seven, and four. And, you know, I was just, it was an early morning. I was getting the kids off to school. We lived on base. And I remember I'd probably just come out of the bathroom from throwing up. And my daughter, who was the seven-year-old, was kind of sitting on the floor in the hallway. And she just said, Mommy, are you okay? And I said, of course I am. Like, why are you asking me? And then there was just, I, I, I can only describe it as it, it's like there was this flash of light or there was, you know, perhaps you might say like a crack in the facade. And it it was as if time stood still. And for a moment I saw, oh my gosh, I'm doing the same thing to her that was done to me, which is teaching her to not trust herself. And I was like, that's not, that's not going to happen. And I went upstairs and I jumped in the shower and I don't know, I always liken water to being some spiritual conductor. I think when I saw the movie Jerry Maguire, it just confirmed it for me. Like his aha moment, he was in the bathroom splashing water on his face. And I, when he had his kind of, oh, wait. And so I was in the shower and I heard a voice say, tell the truth. And I was like, what are you talking about? I always tell the truth. And then I got out of the shower, the phone rang. I picked up the phone. Somebody was asking me where something was. I told them, you know, it was in the mail. It should have been delivered, but I was looking at it on the desk. Like it hadn't even, I hadn't even mailed it yet. And so I just saw my lie because it was right in front of me. And then I just 
for what, however it works, I began to have the awareness to see how I just lied throughout my day. I just, it was one lie after another. So then I, I think I went and got a Walkman. That was the version of music at the time. I got a Walkman and I got some jogging shorts and we lived on base and I just started jogging and I met someone who needed help with some financial bills. It was kind of causing her to be homeless. I said, do you know how to cook? She said, yeah. I said, I'll pay your bills. You come cook. So she came in and started cooking so I could have a whole new, you know, break up an old routine. My husband was deployed overseas, so he was going to be gone for like nine months. So I just began to tell the truth like my life depended on it. You know, I, I, at the time I was a sales director for a cosmetic company and I stood up in front of, you know, the women that I oversaw and just said, this is what's going on with me and I need to take care of myself and my family and cut back on what I'm doing. So I just began to be, it was almost like the Jim Carrey movie where he can't lie anymore and it's confronting for people. And I get that it, I get that it was confronting for people and it was what I needed to do to save my life. So I just spent years just being brutally truthful in order to break up this habitual pattern of, you know, either lying or just not talking, not saying the truth, withholding, lying, telling partial truths. You know what? There's lots of versions of what does a lie look like. And then um, I continued to be guided by this inner voice. You know, for me, I call it God, but you could. And so the second, the second message I got was face your fears because what stopped me from being willing to tell the truth was some fear of I'll lose my family. My marriage will fall apart. My parents will disown me, you know, some version of that. And so I had these over the years, I got these four guides, which were tell the truth, face your fears, stay in the moment and open up to love. And it's still how I live my life. It, it's ongoing. It doesn't ever end because it's always easy to just not say anything. Yeah. It also, it's like, I think when we do tell the truth, when we, and then we're met with what we're not expecting, when yeah. we're met with me too, or I'm so glad you told me that, or some form of being loved, that's what allows us to connect. That's what allows other people mm -hmm. to feel like they can talk to you. Wow, it's it's interesting hearing. So your recovery was really self-directed. Very self-directed, spiritually directed. I mean, yeah. it was, I've had the thought, and I remember at some point I had the thought, for me, that was the perfect way mm -hmm. because otherwise I would have thought that my recovery was the result of something outside of me. And I think I needed to know that I didn't have to rely on something outside of me. I think this was kind of, for me, the reconnection with my spiritual self. It was the reconnection with my, my own soul was the beginning of that. And I'm not saying it was pretty. It was, you know, yeah. it's a journey from that or to linear. now. Yeah, it's not linear. No, I made lots of mistakes. I would still catch myself lying, but the difference was I would catch myself now. Yeah. And then I could begin to clean it up. And it obviously, it's like any practice. You get better and better. You spend more time being truthful, catch the lies sooner, clean it up faster, 
more time being truthful. You just, it's a process. It's so interesting. I feel like I'm in in a phase of the process of, like I was saying earlier, I'm so self-aware. Like I can, but that almost makes it more uncomfortable because sure. it's like yeah. not being self-aware is kind of nice because then you don't have to change. You don't know what you don't know. Right. Yeah. But then being so self-aware, it's just like, I feel so uncomfortable when I go into old patterns, which is ultimately a good thing. And just showing that, you know, growth isn't linear, change isn't mm-hmm. linear. And it's it's interesting that your process of healing was so self-directed and mm-hmm. was, um, or spiritually directed, but it actually really mirrors the 12 steps or yeah. it mirrors these systems that you intuitively led yourself through. Mm-hmm. But ultimately that's what yeah. I've gathered from the 12 steps of it's about admitting to mm-hmm. yourself yeah. and sharing with other people, being honest mm-hmm. and helping other people and getting yeah. out of your own head. And I think that that's, it works because it just ultimately I think is how the world works. It's like being grateful and helping other people is how we're wired as humans to connect with each other. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's part of the design of being human. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really beautiful. So then maybe take us up to closer to the present. So you're, you're working at restaurants, you're, you're starting to heal. What happens next? Let's see through my healing, I would say. So I, I, I really became an entrepreneur in that process I started an inspirational greeting card company and kind of helped teens at risk in order for them to be able to get through continuation school and get their diplomas. Again, it was oftentimes, I mean, my kids got me involved with kids in their schools that were struggling with food issues or abuse issues. So I did a lot of outreach and working with people. I got a license as a massage therapist just so that I had a license to be able to touch people. So I began to coach other people, which is that part of 12 steps where, you know, you give back, you sponsor other people. So I did a lot of that. And then ultimately I had this greeting card company and that was really, I I was thinking about that because again, all this is coming up for me because I'm writing now my story. But I think part of that phase of my life too was learning how to be still and listen because greeting cards, the cards I wrote were really just intuitive wisdom that would just come through. And I would write, I mean, it was such a simple thing. It was like in the early days, I mean, I was around when the internet, you know, came out, we were sitting around as young business women and saying, do you think that WWW thing's really going (laughs) to take off? Or are we going to do that? Are we going to, build a website and how to, why would anyone ever buy anything online if you can't try it on or see it first? Like we were in that whole mystery of, because we were in Silicon Valley, we were in Mountain View. So it was like, why would that, why would people ever do that? And so watching that whole, that whole thing happen and, you know, my greeting cards were super simple and I just reproduced them, started a little printing and put flower seeds in them. And it was a Mm -hmm. whole process. So, you know, this journey and then how I got to kind of more of the present moment is then I started, I took some courses at Landmark Education. Mm -hmm. So I was always looking, I was always attracted to developing myself further. I'd missed most of my educational years. So, you know, I was always fascinated by what it is to be a human being and the study of ontology, the study of being. And so 
I took a, I was somebody who worked for me in the greeting card company, invited me to an initial course with Landmark Education. And I loved it. I mean, I loved that process. And then I went to work for Landmark. So I worked for them for two years. And that's actually where I met Matthew. Matthew Mm. was participating. He had just come out of a divorce after 22 years. And he was dating somebody. I was dating somebody. And we were really just good friends. Mm -hmm. And then when Matthew said to me, like, hey, I realize I want to be more than friends. I was like, you're so not my type. And he was like, what do you mean I'm not your type? We're like best friends. And I was like, oh. And really where I was looking, Katie, was based on previous relationships, he wasn't my type because I had always married addicts and he wasn't. And so that was kind of the beginning of our relationship. And then Cafe Gratitude really came out of, we knew we wanted to be in transformation. We knew that what excited us most was seeing people become the biggest, best, brightest version of themselves. But we also wanted it to be around good food. Mm. And Cafe Gratitude was really a place where people could come and they could eat and they could leave not feeling shame or guilt and they could sit with other people and maybe they'd have a green juice and they'd have a glass of wine. Mm -hmm. And we wanted it to be everyday food that tasted great, but was good for you. And so that kind of opened to this whole world. I mean, we started with, we invented a board game because that's the first guidance You did? Yeah, we did. I didn't know that. Yeah, we invented a board and which was, you know. Can we play sometime? Yeah, it's here. I would love that. Okay, good. (laughs) We, We weren't board game inventors. We didn't play board games, but we did it. In a year, we invented a board game called The Abounding River. And it's about, it's a transformational board game. And it's about how do you keep your attention on, you're the creator of your life. You're worthy. You can love and accept other people. You can be generous. You can be grateful. And this is an abundant life. You live an abundant life. So it's a board game that moves through those Oh, I love that. It's quite, it's quite amazing. And uh, maybe we play later. Okay, great. (laughs) And then we printed a bunch and we were like, well, what are we going to do with these? And we were like, well, let's just open a little cafe. I know how to bake. You love coffee. Let's do a transformational board game coffee shop in San Francisco. Like what could go wrong there? Anyway, that's how we started. And then I ran into the- What year was this? 204. Okay. 2004. (laughs) And so- you know, I'd read about a raw food diet and I was like, that's fascinating. I've never heard that. We were both doing yoga. We were eating well. And so we started as raw food. And then, you know, obviously shortly thereafter, we began to incorporate rice and quinoa and soup. But, you know, in the early days, we had to explain to everyone how you get milk out of an almond. Right. And we don't have to tell anyone that anymore. Or what cold processed coffee is. Everyone knows what that is now, but nobody knew what that was. Yeah, you were really... And so, you know, now we're in this next phase, which is, you know, Cafe Gratitude. We did a whole version of Cafe Gratitude up here, and then we went through a whole implosion through lawsuits, and that's how we came to the farm. So we had eight restaurants in Northern California. Wow. What was the, can you talk about that? Yeah. So we had a couple of people who just disagreed with the way that we shared tips, which, you know, you're probably familiar. It's a very gray area in restaurants and it goes through lots of phases of, yes, you can tip the kitchen. No, you can't tip the kitchen. Oh, the way you shared tips. When you said tips, I, I went to like, News information. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, cash tips. Got it. And so, you know, we shared equally throughout the house. And 
we shared, we were public about it. You know, all the people that by the letter of the law, the tips belong to them, voted every year. Do you want to continue to share with the kitchen? And we did. And, but anyhow, it became a series of lawsuits and a lawyer got a hold of it and wanted to make it a class action suit. And so we didn't really set ourselves up to defend ourselves. We really felt like what we were offering to the world would be appreciated and, we loved that we got to help people. We just weren't prepared for it. So when the lawsuits happened, we needed to sell the building that housed our central kitchen. And we also lived above it. It was a converted warehouse. So in the sale of that, we needed to close all the restaurants that relied on the central kitchen. So we only kept a few open. We had to lay off like 235 people. So that was our betrayal phase. When you yeah. talk about reframing, <laughs> that yeah. was our betrayal phase of transformation and it sent us to live on a farm and so we moved out of the city and camped on this land for eight years so we've only had a house for four years wow so we actually camped out here we lived around a fire pit we had a funky outdoor kitchen and so at that point all the restaurants had closed Uh, and we had two open here so our son had runs one in Santa Cruz. He's now rebranded as his own restaurant. And then we still had Berkeley and Gracias Madre in San Francisco. Berkeley's closed, but we still have Gracias Madre in San Francisco. And so then, wow, that it's so fascinating. Also, there's a storyline in Sweet Bitter about the the tip thing, which uh-huh. is very similar. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's notorious in the restaurant industry. It's, yeah, what do you do with the cash tips? Is it's so interesting again how. You know, I believe there's kind of a comeback after yeah, every bottom, and you're you're such a example of that. So then now you have how many locations, and you opened in LA, and like what was so? Well, how did you at, while navigate we were that? going through that? You know, one woman went into who's our partner in LA. She went into our Marin store, and she she was moving her mother in law into a senior you know care home, um, adult living home, and she went to eat there every day and was like, I need to have this in Beverly Hills. Like I want this in LA and a series of introductions and meetings. And they ended up becoming our partners. And we, we said, you can have our sons, they run the business. So they went down to LA and relocated down there. And, you know, since have opened seven, we opened seven restaurants in seven years in LA. And then our daughter, Molly, she started Sage, which was ice cream and then became a restaurant. And so I think my husband and I are part of 14 restaurants, but we're definitely a restaurant family, (laughs) although we didn't necessarily think we'd go that way. And then we camped out here while LA was kind of bursting. We oversee the cultural part. You know, people always say when you get big, you lose the culture. And we were really committed to keeping that culture kind of family owned use work as an opportunity for people to transform their lives. And so we were really overseeing that from here and eventually we built a home and we did it as we could go. And so we were living in a yurt for a lot of years, eight years. So now we have this farm and we really built it to share with our people. Like if our employees get here, we house them, feed them, host them. And then we do things like you're here for olive camp. We do a wine, a wine harvest and olive harvest. Those are things that involve community and more people. And yeah. So I'm so, 
I'm so proud of you. Is that weird to say? Like, <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's lovely. It's really cool to to witness everything that you're talking about firsthand and being here, and you really feel the goodness of it, and mm. and that it's genuine and comes from you know someone who's been through things mm. and come out the other side and shares that. Uh, yeah, it's it's really lovely. Okay, I have, I have a million things to ask. I'm going to sort of do these in a disjointed, quick fire sort of a way, but they're not really quick questions. We've gone back a lot, but I really want to know, how are you feeling today? What are you, when you look at all of this and you've said you've been reflecting on your life through writing, Mm -hmm. what's your favorite part of your life right now? Well, it's such a great question. So I would say, so it's interesting. I'm curious to read the Jane Fonda thing. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I was sharing with you before we got started, I'm sort of in that phase now where I'm feeling that same internal guidance that has guided me and walked me through, you know, both addiction and the recovery and the creation of mm-hmm. Cafe Gratitude and Gracias Madre. Now it, it feels like it's asking me to step out kind of more as myself, not as a partner or a business or for what I do, but more for who I am. And that's got its own, (laughs) that brings up its own fears, you know, around that. It's one thing to have your business criticized. It's another thing if it's you. Yeah. It's like taking off those masks. You have got nothing. You've got no shield. And that feels exciting. You know, it feels amazing and wonderful. And so, yeah, I'm, we're still, you know, we still oversee culture. We're really looking at what's the future of Cafe Gratitude and Gracias Madre right now. Are, are we going to grow it? Are we going to bring someone else in to grow it? There's still a lot of people who are unreached by a really great plant-based um, option, you know, mm-hmm. that also focuses on the qualities of gratitude and the serving of love. You know, it's a unique dining experience. So we're looking at what's the best future for that, which also then has me look at what's the best future for me. Mm -hmm. And I've spent most of my life working with people between the ages of 16 and 36. It's kind of like you were saying, most of the people you interview are around your age. I mean, I've spent almost all my life working with people in those ages, which has allowed me to kind of relive those years that I lost, Mm. you know, through addiction, which has been a beautiful gift for myself. And now I'm really clarifying, like, what is my message and who do I really want to reach and how best do I do that? So, you know, that was the conversation I had with you about, okay, I'm going to start a podcast and I'm writing this book. And the beautiful thing is I'm not writing a book or starting a podcast like I need another business. It feels more like if I go to the end of my life, and this is my 70th year, if I go to the end of my life, it won't work for me if I haven't done them. Mm -hmm. It's more driven like that. It's more like, this is mine to get out. This is mine to share. For me, if I look back at that lesson now from where I am, I realize that's that fear of what other people think or fear of what other people do. Don't let that get in the way of the message that you have to share. Your message is your message. What people do with this is what people do with it. And so it feels great to be at that place in my life where I feel really called to share kind of the wisdom, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, the wisdom that's gleaned from the life I've lived 
into some format where perhaps it will impact other people's lives. Yeah, you're sh- you're sharing your first doing it for yourself yeah. because it is healing to you. Yeah. And oftentimes I find the art, there's a great David Bowie quote about this that I always quote, but the art that you do for yourself and when you're selfish about your art is usually what impacts other people. Mm-hmm. You know, specific stories are the most relatable. Mm-hmm. I'm excited to read That's and hear great. all of, all of the things. I, I think whatever you make, telling our stories, I think is really healing. Yeah. So you mentioned to me last night that at your restaurants, more people have met and gotten oh, right. married yeah. and romantic relationships have started. I would love to hear from you. What is your greatest lesson on romantic relationships? I would say that love isn't just romantic relationships. Like love is so much bigger and so all inclusive. And I would say romantic relationship is an aspect of love, but it's not love, mm-hmm. you know, just like eating well is not health. It's right. an aspect of health, but it's not all of health or all of well being. And so I would say in the realm of romantic relationship, for me, if I if I look at my life, I would say what's coming up is never give up. You know, I just don't give up. And then what I think is so important is what really we've been talking about is the commitment to keep the communication authentic and transparent. Like that is, that actually is the foundation of romance is that authenticity, the being seen, heard, and valued. And it's easy to go to a place where I'm not seen, heard, or valued. It's more difficult to go, am I seeing, hearing, and valuing the other? And that's the work, I think, because I think when people say I've fallen out of love or I think what happens is it's because we've, we're not seeing, hearing, valuing the other and our attention may be on, I'm not seeing, heard, and valued. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that you and Matthew you were going in different directions, but you were able to, and you also work together. You have this farm together that Mm -hmm. takes so much collaboration. How do you navigate when there's something you don't agree on or when things do get challenging? I I think we've been really good at championing the other person. Like I want for him what he wants, even if it's not what I want, I want for him what he wants And I believe he does well at, he wants for me what I want, even if it's not what he wants. And so I think we've done a really good job of that. And I also have this big view that says, even when people go through phases, this, it's not over yet, right? You can, I, I felt this when my kids were teenagers and I didn't like their music. I remember saying, well, this won't last forever. And so I think I do that too in relationship. I realize, you know, there's some bigger force in control here. I don't need to control it. I just need to learn to love well. Uh, and love well often isn't about what I, my perception. It's more about how could I perceive this? where I would be left with the experience of love and so would he. 
And I think we've, we're learning. We've, we've learned some aspect of that and we're still learning how to be able to do that. Yeah. Do you feel like every past relationship that you've had gave you this perspective and this practice to be able to do this now? I don't know that the past relationships did, but the restoration of those past relationships did. So I had obviously lots of broken relationships and I've gone back and restored them. I mean, those people are all in my life and, you know, we're all friends. And so I don't have any broken relationships that I don't have any connection to, that I don't have some current ongoing connection to. So I would say, the restoration of those relationships has definitely led me to where I am because mm -hmm. I've seen, you know, like, for example, the father of my two kids, you know, now he's, you know, he's 73 and he's in a wheelchair and he had his life and what he went through. And while I didn't go through it with him, I was more an observer of it. I've gotten to learn through him what he learned in his journey through that. So that's why I say I think it's it's the current relationship with those people that I think has taught me the most. But definitely the you know those relationships needed to be restored in order for me to really get the lesson from them. It's really cool that you were able to do that. Mm. And it's cool to see there was so much healing in that. Mhm. Mm so being here and being on this farm and being outside and around nature and food and it has been so healing for me just in the so past great. like several hours. <laughs> so I want to know what your life is like. How has being here impacted your mm. well-being? Mm. And you know, I usually ask people and I will, I will ask you this as well, your morning and evening routines, maybe the first three things you do when you wake up in the morning. Mm what time that is, get as specific as you mm -hmm. feel comfortable. And in the evening, the last few things you do. Mm. But I'm really curious with you, like what is a, a whole day? I'm sure mm. it changes so much seasonally. Remember too, I spend a good amount of time on the farm, but then we also travel a good bit and go into the restaurants and we have 13 grandkids. So I also have a lot of variety in my life. It was funny because our mutual friend, John was asking me the other day, what do you do? And like, your routine's disrupted. And I was like, oh, that's so funny, right? Because it's always disrupted mm -hmm. with all that we have going on. Which is so healthy. Yeah, but it's not about it's not about what you're doing, I said to John. It's about who are you being. That's your and that's why I was asking you about Ikigai, right? It's mm -hmm. like it's the being of you. And that the being of you can show up in no matter what you're doing, so to speak. So, you know, my day looks like I get up at five. So I get up early because it's the only quiet time I have. And I am actually a person who loves quiet time and alone time, but I live in community. I've always lived in community. Uh, we now have a big family. There's just, there's just always stuff going on. So I get up and that's my time where I- Do you I, wake up naturally or need an alarm? Um, I pretty much wake up naturally because I've gotten up at that time so for so long. So I get up early. I love it. You know, all I do is wash my face. That's the first thing I do, brush my teeth and wash my face. And then I go out and I have a tendency to do a couple chores, which is like if I know there's a big group on the farm, I start the coffee and things like that. But I take my collagen and I take my my gut 
supplement that goes on an empty stomach. And then I kind of curl into my chair and that's where I do, you know, some time in silence. I do some time in reading scripture. I do some time in, that's also when I write. So I get like two hours of writing in before the day starts. And so that's also when I write. And then at the end of the day, I I leave things clean because I don't want to wake up to a mess at 5 a.m. Mm-hmm. So I make sure things are left clean. And then I, my goal is to get to bed early because I wake up early. And I also am not committed to watching like violence or any movie that's disturbing before I go to bed because it will impact my my dreams. And so, you know, we always take a bath. Matthew and I always take a bath together at night. And then I always do exercises. I do like a half hour of yoga before I go to bed. And then I read something that inspires me and then I go to bed. And we sleep it's with lovely. we sleep with our dogs and we snuggle them and appreciate them. That's so sweet. So writing sounds like it's been really healing to you. Mm-hmm. I I obviously read this book about about journaling. Have you been someone who journals? Do you obviously you're working on this project, but what does writing do for you? Mm, I would say, well, for, for me right now, my experience of writing is actually going back through my life. And writing without the emotions of pain, it's like being able to see it more as an observer, less than the person living it. It's more like, how can I adequately share this story? And while I get the the luxury of being able to feel it, I'm not feeling it from like, I'm still in it which is very different. I'm feeling it from, and I got through that, which is a different experience. And I think it's really allowing me to get who I am, I think in a different way. Uh, That feels really, that feels really good. And then the other question you asked me was my day. So I melt cows in the morning. I make cheese every day. So, you know, that's kind of before breakfast. Cook. I, we, I cook a lot. And then there's a community breakfast, which could be anywhere from eight to 25 people. And then there's, um, that's you my know. favorite part of me. I'm a <laughs> breakfast person. Yeah. And that's my favorite meal. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So wonderful. Like, and then I bake bread and, you know, I, I, so I'm managing sourdough starters and bread. And, and then I'm the person that, I'm the person that keeps track of all the items on the farm. So I'm the order, <laughs> I'm the order and supply person. And, you know, then I oversee emails and conference calls and things like that, plus things that are happening on the farm. And then we do a big lunch. We feed, you know, again, eight to 25 people a lunch meal, but we don't do dinner, which is amazing. When people are here for Olive Harvest, we do a light dinner, but traditionally, We don't do a meal. We eat at 2.30, so we eat late. And then we don't have a meal in the evening. We call it cereal hour because all the young kids that live on the farm go eat cereal or leftovers or toast or whatever. So we don't do that. And my husband loves to watch a movie, and I'll watch a movie with him if it's not too late. You know, it's interesting around food and the the nourishment that you you provide yourself and and everyone here and your tumultuous relationship with food and your body in the past, it's 
such a full circle thing that I yeah. think is really wonderful. And, and you, which I want to go back to, but you telling me about your day and all of the different elements of it. I have this, this line that I keep coming back to. I saw this Leonard Cohen documentary this summer where one of his wives who really was one of his main muses, she called herself a life artist. Mm -hmm. And I really have taken that in and observed people in my life that I really admire who do so many things. And it's not that they do so many things well, but they do so many things with presence and with mindfulness and the best that they can. And I think that, you know, whether you're making sourdough or writing or, you know, milking mm -hmm. a cow, I think it's about your like really being there mm -hmm. and showing up as yourself. And that's something about, you know, being here, I can, I can really sense that, mm -hmm. of that I think in New York. And I think just running around and being so busy can be a distraction from being with yourself. And mm -hmm. what is your greatest lesson on being present? Well, I think because I spent so many years really checked out, mm -hmm. I think that is what matters most to me is really being wherever I am with whoever I'm with and not looking ahead or looking behind, but just being right here because that is where all the richness of life is. And I would also say these 16 years of really working gratitude has, you know, gratitude now is your mind. So gratitude is a meditation mm -hmm. because you're not grateful then or when you're grateful now. And it has the ability to just bring you into the present moment. So the longer you practice being grateful, I think is a powerful tool in just simply being present. Mm. And that's what you know, I was sharing with you earlier. That's what I'm most lit up yeah. about is really developing and working with people and being grateful, especially those of us who live in a developed country where there, there is so much to be grateful for. And yet many people have no experience of consciously practicing gratitude at all. And the correlation of that and the most depression and anxiety yeah, exactly. and sadness. Yeah. And suicides and yeah, teen depression. And like I shared with you earlier, when I did that trip to India, I really got this message. Like if we really want to impact those that don't have, the most powerful way to do that is for those of us that have to really be grateful mm -hmm. because when we're grateful, we'll do different things with the resources yeah. that we've been blessed with. Okay. I want to talk about food and cooking and nourishment because of both of our histories with that. And so many people that listen to the podcast find me through that. And being here has been so healing in an eating disorder recovery sort of a way for me. Tell me a bit about your ethos with food and you seem like someone who has a really healthy relationship with food in your body now. And obviously it hasn't always been that way. Where are you with that now? And and often the way I phrase this question to people is, you know, again, it's not linear. So when you are f having a weird moment, how how do you pivot and come back to feeling good? I would say what I've arrived at after 34 years of quote unquote recovery 
is kind of like you said, it's kind of come full circle. So while initially I had a kind of restricted food entrance into refeeding myself, because to, to just be really clear, like I literally threw up almost everything I ate for 20 years. And during my pregnancies, I would just drink a glass of milk before I went to bed at night and that was it. And I had prenatal care for two of my children, but minimally. And had unmedicated births, like going to doctors, taking vitamins. You know, there's so many things that my kids do as pregnant women for children for new births today. And, you know, they ask me questions and I'm like, you guys do not want to know what I did, right? You don't want to know. I wasn't healthy. I wasn't well. And yet, you know, there's a miracle. Your body, the baby gets what the baby needs because it'll take it from you. And you're the one that gets depleted from that. But you know, the baby's going to get its needs first, which is, how does that work? How beautiful is that? So for me, I love eating food as close to its grown as possible. So the least amount of processing, but I don't restrict. I mean, yes, the wheat here on the farm is local wheat and we grind it fresh and the dairy on the farm is raw dairy and it comes from our cows. And the cheese is made here. Like I don't buy anything that we grow. So when cantaloupes are in the store and I love cantaloupes, I don't buy them until cantaloupes are on the farm. So we also eat seasonally. And when you eat seasonally, you get everything you need over the course of a year, but you don't necessarily get it day to day to day. You know, we don't eat strawberries in the winter. We only eat strawberries in the late spring and summer you know, when strawberries are growing. So we eat everything in season and local. If it doesn't grow here, we don't eat it. We don't fly food in from some far off place in order to have it. And I love that. And I think I've experienced the health that comes from that. It feel I feel more connected to the earth. I feel more connected to creation, more connected to God, more connected to my body. And I don't have this impatience for I want, I want, I want, because I've learned to eat on an annual cycle instead of on my desire right now, which I also think has impacted that experience of living by desires. I want this now. I want that now. As it's different than I'm just waiting. Sometimes I'm waiting for it. Like now we have persimmons, we have pears, we have walnuts, we have pecans, we have chestnuts, but you know, we don't have strawberries. We don't have blackberries. We have apples, but we don't have peaches. So I think for me, I would say that is like the best thing people can do. Shop at farmer's markets, support local farms, eat in season and eat locally. And of course, yes, organic or biodynamic or regenerative or Yeah, and that's not always possible for everyone nope. in every in every situation, yep. but in being in cities and yep. financially, however, it's so lovely when you it's can so do great it. When you and, can, yeah. And I was talking to some people last night just about farming and about how I've I've never done anything like this. I like had been to <laughs> Cafe so Gratitude, brave. loved it, but like really I was I vaguely knew you guys owned it and this was your farm, but I was just like trusting and said yes, which I've been doing a lot this year. And I've never farmed or done any sort of 
nature-y thing, <laughs> really. Mm-hmm. And I love it. Yeah, like I love being here. I don't, I can't even explain it. It's Again, it's been like less than 24 hours. Mm-hmm. And last night we were having this conversation in the sauna about farming and the cyclical nature of it of like, this is how I think we were meant to live as human beings in community, yep. doing work during the day that feels really good. Like yesterday when we came in for lunch, I was so hungry and granted I had the most beautiful homemade pizza in front of me. So I think I would have been hungry regardless, but it felt like I had been connected to the earth and moving and standing and communicating with people and to sit down and eat that meal felt correct. Mm -hmm. It's like all I can Mm -hmm. say about it. And the cyclical nature of being out working on something and then eating food grown in the place that I was Mm -hmm. living and how that impacts us and how it's different seasonally because the work changes and the, like that I think is really beneficial for us creatively. Mm -hmm. And the amount of decisions that we have to make a day now, I don't think is natural. And I think is impacting our minds negatively and causing so much anxiety where this sort of, not that it's easy, not that, you know, having a farm, there's so many challenges, I'm sure, but there's something so intuitive about Mm -hmm. it that feels right. Yep. And I think, I also think that there are opportunities for people. You just have to seek them out, like find out where there are you pick places or find out where there is a farm that has a CSA or some schools Mm -hmm. offer farm boxes or, and You know, one of the things that I tell people who have a restriction around the finances and all is the truth is there's so much more nutrition in, you know, food grown locally available to you that you don't have to eat as much to get the nutrition as you do if you're doing any processed foods or so seek it out, look for it. And there are places that, I mean, I know, you know, for us, it's like we're happy to feed people on what they can afford because we want to make food available to people. And farms always have food left. It's not like everything you make is used. So just seek it out. Look for it because it's so it's such a wonderful experience to be able to get close to nature or start a backyard raised bed garden or, you know, sprouts in a jar on your windowsill, Mm -hmm. something that you get to have that experience of what you're talking about, which is being connected to nature and growing something and seeing it through, you know, the cycle of that. And there's something so healing about, and we're missing our connection Mm -hmm. to nature. And I think that, you know, we're seeing how important that is. And I think for, for me too, I think food and pleasure and taste yeah. is something not to be missed. You know, mm-hmm. I think for me, the way we experienced our eating disorders is very different. And I think recovery is very different for different people. But one thing I think that's in common is, you know, we have so few, I say this all the time, but we have so few sensory pleasures in the mm-hmm. world. And to deny ourselves one of them for so long or as long mm-hmm. as we both did, I think there's this propensity to want to share that. And I'm still, you know, re-recovering and recovering. And and there's so many layers to this. And I think for me, I tend to be an addictive personality of, you know, going down these rabbit holes with 
different diets and different yeah, fads and different and, yeah, yeah. And, and ultimately it's just coming back to simple things mm-hmm. and nothing nothing will kill you yep. enjoying food and being present with it mm-hmm. and being with other people is the most beautiful sensory experience that our like you said our bodies are going to balance out it doesn't yeah. really matter that much what we're eating or how much we're eating if we're enjoying mm-hmm. life and being present mm-hmm. right? i agree yeah i want to talk a little bit more about having having a farm what is the most challenging part or maybe a like a silly part that you don't get to talk about much or mm-hmm. people would be surprised by well you know our our farms unique in the sense that it's very diverse I mean, we do olive oil, wine, you know, peaches, nuts, cheese, meat. We do all kinds of things, right? Mm-hmm. So I would say the most challenging part for us is probably getting the farm to be able to financially support itself because we're so diversified. It's why big farms do one thing, why we have monocropping is they can just be masters of one thing, but it's not what's best for the land and it's not what's best for the people on the land if there are even people on the land. And so the small family farm is more of this model And I would say for us, it's sharing the farm with other people. And yet that's the most challenging thing for people because, you know, people are the biggest challenge. And so even in the restaurant, we can have a restaurant all set up. We can have great food, but you open the door and bring the people and now you have some new challenges. Mm -hmm. And so I would say it's communication and people skills, which, you know, we pride ourselves on excelling at, but it doesn't always work, you know, yeah. we, we, we have breakdowns, we have issues, but I would say, you know, people skills, develop yourself in people skills. It doesn't even matter if you're farming or not farming, like communication and people yeah. skills are where it's at. The animals and the climate and the... They're, they're fine. <laughs> they're they, fine. They get along <laughs> great. Yeah. They're not a problem. Ducks That's go so out funny. in the rain and lay eggs anyway. Do you guys think that you're landmark background has helped what's the greatest thing you learned from landmark do you Mm, think it's i think the greatest tool that we use that we use daily out of landmark is just the realization of um that we're creating our own story and you could create it's kind of what you said like reframe it you Mm -hmm. you could create a different story and it'd still be the same life so just the realization of taking responsibility for the story you're creating And then for me, I would say, you know, it was another, it was a great training in listening, um, which is an element of being present. Mm -hmm. And then we use it primarily as a resource for other people because the the first course that is available through Landmark Education is really about getting your past complete. So interestingly enough, when I did it, I was already in recovery and I was running this greeting card company. And I went, I was inspired to it because I wanted to learn more business skills. Mm -hmm. But yet what I saw there was the past that was in my future was the best thing that had ever happened to me had already happened. So I kept having this experience that I was hitting a ceiling, but the ceiling was my own thought. Mm -hmm. I made it because when people asked me about the best thing that ever happened to me, I would say my recovery. But that was in the past. Mm. And once I saw that, then I was free to create newly 
a new future, free from limitless recovery. Yeah. And that was massive for me. That was mm-hmm. huge. And I still remind myself of that because, you know, you go on through life and you create new ceilings, mm-hmm. whether it's your age, whatever, whatever you think is the limitation, you create that like it's a ceiling, but it's not. Yeah. It's just a thought. And so I use that, I think, all the time. Mm, I love that. You've mentioned spirituality and intuition. What is your what is your spiritual practice and what are you how do you frame that and how it's affected your life? So, you know, I I grew up in a kind of traditional Christian military Christian and Catholic on base in military mm-hmm. in the military you there used to be two. You could go to Protestant or Catholic services. Okay. So I grew up in a Protestant, but then my parents kind of quit going to church once we got super involved in sports because we were often traveling on weekends. And while they helped start a church in Carmel Valley, they weren't really going regularly and we didn't either. But then because of my recovery and that internal guidance and my experience of Jesus over my life, I would say I'm a Jesus follower And I do currently belong to a church that I love, but I would say there's lots of Christian churches I wouldn't belong to. Mm -hmm. And there are a few that I think are extraordinary, but mostly I would say my life is really about, I want to love the way Jesus loved. And I have an experience of Jesus as being, you know, kind and generous and loving and non-judgmental and forgiving and that's really the mm-hmm. desire I have and you know what I follow and I listen to lots of different you know spiritual Philosophy. teachings and I follow those that speak to my heart and have me feel closer to being a loving person and that's really that's really my practice what do you think happens when we die? Um, well, I think that when we die, it's great. I don't, I don't know that I have the answer. I'm just going to share with you how it is for me now. I think that when we die, well, I'm going to tell you a story first. Okay. okay. So I have a friend whose parents started Family Christian Radio in Sacramento, and they were just the most amazing. They always housed other people. They always made room for other person at the table. They had a couple special needs kids. I mean, they were just the kindest, most generous, most beautiful people. And they were Christians. And um, when, and his, the mom loved cheese, Mm -hmm. but she had high cholesterol and she was always being put on a dairy restrictive diet, but she loved cheese. Mm -hmm. And when she was dying, So one of my closest experience to death, when she was dying, she was like, there's cheese everywhere. Everywhere I look, there's cheese. Mm. So her transition into heaven was cheese laden. Mm. (laughs) And, And then my father, when he died, he was looking up at those ugly acoustic ceiling tiles. And... I was trying to figure out, like, what is he possibly thinking looking at those acoustic ceiling tiles? And I said, Daddy, what are you thinking? And he goes, love. It's just all love. So if I take those two stories and I look at what I believe, I believe that we're met with a love greater than 
we can fathom. And it could look or appear any number of ways. It will appear in the way that speaks loudest to you, but that we will merge into a love that, a love, some people call it a light. We will merge into something so profound and so great Mm. that probably the words that we have to describe it are limiting. And yet, if you know the person who's dying, the words will mean something more to you like they mean to them. Mm. But yeah, I believe that it's like a wonderland. We merge into a a oneness beyond anything we could ever imagine. Yeah. Like our own creation of a wonderland. I feel like I'm, maybe I'll jump into a a pot of the oatmeal that you made this morning. (laughs) That was pretty amazing, right? (laughs) Yeah, it was really good. Yeah. Someone told me once about death. It's like taking off a shoe that's too tight. Uh, Yeah. Like an exhale, Mm -hmm. like being on this farm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I've mentioned several times that you're such a nurturing presence to be around. So with that, you are a mother and a nurturer. What's your greatest lesson on parenting? I'm always looking for what will have that person, whoever that person might be, right? What will have that person see themselves in the best light possible? What will have them feel better about themselves? Mm. And that's often different, you know, but just, yeah, I think it's so important to be able to reflect to others how loved they are. And sometimes I think we reflect it based on our view. I'm trying to get to, based on their view, what would elevate their view of themselves. Mm. So that I'm not contradicting them, that I'm aligned with them, but raising it up a bar. Yeah. It's, I love how personalized that is. Mm. I think that's often what's what's lost with education system mm-hmm. for sure and sometimes in parenting and can create low self-worth and mm-hmm. something that you know I, I want to ask you about this too I struggle with and I I look at you and I I really am expanded by you you seem like someone who's who really genuinely likes themselves and in not an egoic way but you're confident and you know yourself and are able to be in that without the masks every moment I've been around you here. How do you, if you ever go out of that, do you? And how do you bring yourself back into aligning with yourself Mm. and and existing as yourself in the world? Like, do you ever feel anxious or uncomfortable or or stressed and Mm. get out of that? So so I've heard this Mm. before. So I, I had a friend... Um, in Los Angeles, say something about like that. Like you're just, you're so you wherever you go. Like you're just you. It doesn't matter where you are or who you're with or whatever. And so I've heard this before. And I would say, I don't actually have an experience of that because I think it's true, right? So I don't really have an experience of pretense or of not being myself. But now I remember I'm also much older. So 
I think I care less about what other people think. Mm -hmm. And the times, I'm looking for a time when I might, and I would say, if I feel I've drifted from it, my default is more something like not being seen, Mm -hmm. laying low or playing small. But I don't usually let myself get away with that. You know, for example, it might it might be, I don't speak up. It's more like that. I don't want to be, so it looks like this. I don't want to always seem like I matter or something mm-hmm. like that. So I pull back. And I don't do that very often. But when, And when I notice I'm doing it, then I usually speak up. But mm-hmm. I would see that would be my tendency to be kind of, to show up outside of who I really am. I know exactly what you mean. That's, that's my tendency too. I think it's like when I'm feeling high, right. When I have, I have, you know, and my depression is like really low lows and high highs. I kind of feel things up here and down here and trying to get more in the middle. But when I'm high, I feel like I can show up as myself. I feel comfortable in what I'm doing. I feel seen and recognized. And when I'm feeling low, I've, I forget I'll ever be high and I, I want to retreat. I don't think I matter. I, I question everything I'm saying and doing and I feel really shaky and it's so uncomfortable to be mm-hmm. there. And so getting out of that can feel, it's almost like I have to fall out of it. Mm-hmm. It's like I can't, um, it's, it's, it's what gets me out of it actually now that I'm saying this is being present is like mm-hmm. gra- yeah. gratitude is surrendering yeah. to like, this is the way the cookie crumbled. This is where I'm at. And it starts to realign. Like things start to, something starts to trigger things to bring me back up. Mm-hmm. And it always happens. It's mm-hmm. just like that patient of the interim of, you know, the cyclical nature of emotion, just mm-hmm. like life. Yep. And also I think if I'm with a group of people and they all agree on something, Rather than disagree, if I don't, I attempt to present something like an alternative. Let's, but what about, Mm. what about so that we don't get into a this or that or good or bad or right or wrong? And I think I've just learned that. But let's look at it this way. What about this? That's such a better way to say that. I I often say I'm a really poor debater because Uh I don't like it. And I feel like when I try, I met with a brick wall and I Mm -hmm. facts leave my mind and I don't even want to go there. But I love that's a great way to articulate that Mm -hmm. of just to, because sitting, sitting at a table when you don't agree with what's being said and you don't want to speak up feels super uncomfortable because it feels like you're abandoning yourself Mm -hmm. and it feels like you're almost being fake, but also saying a perspective that you know is not going to be, you know, you're not in the environment where that's able to be heard. Mm -hmm. That's not fun either. Mm -hmm. So you kind of need this middle ground, which I think is what you're describing. Yeah. 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 Okay. You seem like someone who works really hard, is very creative, life artist, but you also seem like you can rest and that's so important and something that I'm personally really struggling with of my self-worth, you know, same thing I did with my, my past addiction I've put into work and creativity 
where I'm judging my worth based off of those things. Mm -hmm. So on days when I'm not producing, I don't feel like I'm getting that hit of dopamine. Mm -hmm. How do you, have you had to learn to rest? Because it looks like Mm -hmm. you've done so many things in your life. Can you talk to me about that a bit? Yeah, I would say I've definitely had to learn to rest. And I think the key for me has been, I have a tendency to kind of go, 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 go Mm -hmm. all day. And the key for me has been, valuing that I work best if I get to bed early and get up early. Now, that doesn't always happen. You know, we need to take olives to the press and we're going to get late. And, you know, but then if I'm going to get to bed late, I don't force myself to get up early. I allow myself the freedom to say, I'm going to get up a little later today, even though I love and thrive on that quiet time in the morning. But I also know if I haven't gotten enough rest and I push myself to do that, it doesn't work well for me. So, but I've had to learn that. And part of that too has been, Katie, it's been like learning to value myself and my needs, you know, and even know what they are. And then once I know what they are, to practice that, to commit to the practice of that, which when you live in community is also making sure everybody else knows, you know, and if something has to be done and I'm not going to be there, who's going to take it on? So you have to be able to delegate. So then we're back again to our ability to communicate and empower other people and make requests. So, but I've definitely had to learn how to do that. I have a much stronger drive to like push myself And, you know, from early, I mean, I can look at my history and see where that came from. So, yeah, learning, it's kind of new and I love it and I value it. And I've always been jealous of people who can just like sit down and read a magazine, you know, in the middle of the day. And if I get too exhausted, you know, allow myself to take a nap. But it's definitely learned. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I really, like I said, I really admire you. I want, I kind of want to be you when I, when I grow up, the way that you. we got to stay we got to stay connected. You have to come back. The way that you interact in your world is mm. is really, your world itself is inspiring, but you and the way that you communicate within it is is really cool. Mm, thank um, you. Do you ever feel, feel overwhelmed or disorganized? Do you have any tips for that? Mm. Yeah, I would say, you know, it's interesting. The overwhelm for me usually comes from seeing there's a need greater than I planned for. You know, for example, in hospitality, the reason why I want to know at least approximately Mm -hmm. how many people are going to be here is I want it to be nice for them. You know, even like when you arrived. So, you know, we were communicating, what time are you going to come? And the crew's like, let's just go ahead and start. She can join us. And I was like, no. It's like when a brand new person steps into here and this is totally foreign, you're going to all be eating. And then it's like walking into a classroom that's already started. I said, no, we're just going to wait. You're just going to wait. So I think I've learned to wait. I've learned to value waiting. And I think in the waiting, there's guidance, there's compassion, there's empathy. And waiting is not culturally strong. You know, we don't have a culture that wait. people are mostly impatient waiting. And I think I've learned to be patient waiting. And I think that helps with both the experience of overwhelm or disorganization. And, you know, my early morning helps me be set up for the day. Cleaning up before I go to bed helps me be set up. 
But if I get up and somebody's come in late and eaten and left all their dishes, I've learned to not let that take over and have me get upset by it, but just, okay, great. I'm going to use cleaning these dishes as an opportunity to calm myself. And we have a culture, I have a culture that I practice called surprise and delight. So rather than doing my fair share, I live from surprise and delight. Like, what can I do that would actually surprise this person and delight them? And it's so beautiful. I mean, it's like how it came about was we lived in community in San Francisco. And I noticed in the laundry room, it was the classic thing of someone comes in to do their laundry, but there's someone's basket there. The washer's full, the dryer's full, and there's a load on top of the dryer. So do my fair share would be move my basket in front of them take the dryer, throw it up on top, take the washer, throw it in the dryer, put yours in. But surprise and delight would be, no, put your basket behind the one that's waiting, move all the clothes to the next level, fold the ones from the dryer, put the washer in the dryer, put the basket in the washer and start them. Like that would be surprise and delight. And then when the person who realizes they forgot their laundry runs down, they come down to all their clothes are folded. And then Hopefully, when they see that, they realize, wow, they could fold the dryer now and move the washer to the dryer. So, it's like one person doing all the laundry instead of all these individual parts doing just their part. And I call that surprise and delight. And if you can successfully integrate that into your life or into a community's life, it's a completely different experience of living together. You know, it's so beautiful because we realize we're actually all helping one another as opposed to just doing our fair share. Yeah. It's very different. That community feeling is, I think, the antidote to loneliness and mm-hmm. depression mm-hmm. and these and anxiety and these mm-hmm. things that, you know, we're hearing about so much more and people are experiencing so much more because we're living so isolated and honestly because of our phones. And mm-hmm. I think because of, you know, my my work is about connection because actually in in practicality it's it's rather lonely and so mm-hmm. it's it's just cool to hear about living in community and i think that if there much like we were talking about with food if there's many ways we can small ways we can integrate this into our lives i think we'd be better for it mm-hmm. okay a couple actually quick questions best thing you've eaten in the last month Mm, I agree that oatmeal was good this morning. So good. <laughs> I would say that would be my answer. Uh, I would say, have you had the hot ricotta cheese lately? Is that what we had in the pizza? Yeah, but I serve it in a bowl the day I make it, and it's hot. No, oh. it's so good. It's so amazing. Oh my so God. I would say that. And then I'm an ice cream. I mean, oh, I'm a, that is the best thing I've eaten. <laughs> I'm a raw milk ice cream. I'm just like an ice cream. That's that, my favorite dessert in whole oh world. Oh my God. I can't believe it. I don't think I told you about my reaction to that. Let me break it down for the people listening. <laughs> yesterday, I was it's yesterday was like laughable because it was just like a little bit too good. I was kind of like, is is someone gonna come out and like tell me that I'm being <laughs> punked or something? Because we had this beautiful pizza and salad and just the most magical meal. And then afterward, I was served a homemade salted caramel yeah. ice cream. That was so insanely delicious. I just kept looking around at everyone being like, this is like a little bit too good. Like I couldn't, there was no word for it. I was like, this is, it's too good. That was all I could say. It was like a bit 
I'd never had anything like it. Maybe that's what it should be called. We should brand this thing. It's too good ice it's cream. It's too good. Yeah, it's too good. good. It like shouldn't be allowed. And what's so beautiful is I had no <laughs> refined sugar in there. So it was raw milk and molasses. There was no refined sugar in it there. It was so good. Was I, so I feel good. like we might... I feel very connected to you. And so, you know, how some people have like just similar tastes for uh-huh. things like some everyone has different uh-huh. tastes. I feel like we must have yeah, because good. we really like the same <laughs> sorts of things. And it's funny, like I had restricted dairy for so many years and I, I walked in yesterday and I was like, all right, I guess I'm eating dairy now. And it's it's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, it's very different to do yeah. raw dairy. Yeah. So That's a whole world. Yeah. OK, um, this is a question really just to recommend things. If you were, I sometimes frame it as like you're going to a deserted island or just these can be all-time favorites or things you're really into now. So music, piece of music, could be a song or like an album, a book you love, a movie you love, and a food that you couldn't live without. Well, it's so, okay, so here's something about me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I have a horrible memory when it comes to like movie stars, movies, Music. I just, it's like, I hear it. I love it. The ne- I can go to a movie and the next day someone asks me what the movie is. I'm like, I don't know, but I haven't been to this movie uh-huh. yet, but everyone is telling me you have to go see this movie. And it's the new movie that Tom Hanks plays Fred oh, Rogers. Yeah. 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 John said you guys were going to go. Yeah. And then it was to- sold out. Oh, and bummer. then somebody wrote me and said, you're the female version of him. Uh-huh. So I don't know. Anyway, I really want to go see that. Have you seen the documentary on Mr. Rogers? I did. That so was great. Good, right? That was great. Because yeah. my kids kind of grew up with Mr. Rogers mm. and we also lived in Pittsburgh at the time. Oh, so wow. anyway, so hey, I want to go see that, but yeah, I haven't yeah, seen it I'm yet. But I, to see it too, yeah. and I think it's called, it's a beautiful day in mm-hmm. the neighborhood, which, so I do remember the name of that. <laughs> um, and then we're preemptively recommending yeah, a movie. Neither of us have seen it before I've seen it because <laughs> yeah. so many people told me I'm going to love yeah. it. By and the time this is them. out, well, we can't yeah, give out. an update. You just take it out. I'll say it again. So the, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, Mr. Rogers. And you just edit out that I haven't Great. seen it yet. <laughs> and then book. So I've become, because I'm starting this podcast and writing my own book, I've be, become an avid reader, mm. but it's all in kind of a similar genre because I'm just devouring, devouring, devouring books because I'm trying to learn and see. I've read so many books I might never have read. I've read so many of Rob Bell's books and took a writing course. And there's, again, that's another situation where he's called the heretic in so many circles. And yeah, my experience was after reading his books is I drew closer to Jesus, not further away. Mm -hmm. So I had a different experience, but I'm also not reading or learning things from agree, disagree. It's more from, yeah, the opening of my heart, the expression of more love. And then Erwin McManus is someone who I've also read all of his books. And again, these are all a particular genre because of the work that I'm doing. And then Mary Oliver, somebody gave me a poetry book, a devotional poetry book of hers. And I'm just like, love that. And I love Rumi poems. And, but I love... I pretty much love whatever I read. Uh, yeah, I have a good friend who just wrote a book called Beginner's Pluck mm. and Liz Bohannon. And I just, I love her and I love, so yeah, I read a lot mm. right yeah. now. Music or TV show that you want to recommend or Music. love? So I've never watched television. I never grew up with a TV and mm-hmm. I've never watched television. But now I don't think people even call it television because right. now we watch these like movies and serials things. Okay. But I love This Is Us. Mm-hmm. I love that. 
And I also love the Queen. Oh, yeah. But I grew, I lived in England at a time when right. Queen Elizabeth was younger and vital. And, and I also remember being so devastated when Princess Diana died. Yeah. And that kind of connected me more, again, to kind of the royal family. So I love that. And this is a crazy show that I can, I don't know if I can remember the name of it, but it's like Vikings or something. But it's oh, yeah. like Lagatha. And um, I think maybe Uhtred? this is called Vikings. Maybe. I didn't watch it, but I think someone. But it's it. so violent and so crazy. But yet <laughs> we laugh because when I got back my genetic testing, I have a little bit of Viking mm. in me, right? So we joke like people call me Lagatha. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. Um, and then music, I love so much. I love so many, so much different music. I love Audrey Assad. I love, I love Lady Gaga. It's my doppelganger. People always tell me I look like her. Oh, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> I think it's just the big nose. <laughs> no, I can see it in your eyes, too. And, but, you know, I fell in, I mean, I loved her mostly because I did some research more about who she was, but I love so many different. My mm-hmm. son has an ongoing music list that he keeps updated for me called Mom's Favorites, Aww. but he just keeps adding to it. It's the best gift I ever got. So I just turn it on and I get new music great. all the time. That's fantastic. So great. I love it. Speaking of your son, greatest lesson on family. So because we have so many grandchildren and I hear people talk about how kids are or whatever, and I just say, it's so beautiful. My grandchildren are, you know, raised differently in different families and they're all amazing. So I just think you look beyond the different, they, they all turn out. They're all yeah, great. Totally. Just remember that. It all turns out. In the end, it all turns out. They're great. That's such a comforting thing to say. I, I think my... My experience of that has been, you know, my friends who have kids and the things they're doing for their kids and the amount of sometimes rigidity and care that's really beautiful. I think of like, I turned out okay. And like, it didn't get any of that, you know, it's, yeah. Okay. Let's end with a fun question before I ask you the final, oh, two fun questions. Okay. You have great style. Has that evolved <laughs> over time? That I is really so funny. Okay, I have like no style. I love it. Suddenly, I think it's, it's like fantastic. great style. I wear. Well, maybe like I just like you, and I boots. love your style. Yeah, I have a tendency to wear the same. Like when we pack, it's hilarious. If I look at my schedule and I realize I'm not in the same group any of the days, I just wear the same thing same, the whole time. Same. I do that all the time <laughs> because it's so easy. Like, okay, that's. I love uniforms like that. Yeah. I think mostly I just go for what's comfortable. Mm-hmm. And I have a couple of daughters and daughters-in-laws who give me clothes. Great. And they keep me like, they give me very snazzy sunglasses and they give me bags or jackets or whatever. And it's awesome. But I mostly go for what I feel good in. Mm-hmm. You know, what I feel good in is mostly what I wear. And I think whenever someone feels comfortable with what they're wearing, yeah. it always looks better. Yeah, that's good. Okay, so you're having a dinner party and you can invite, I don't know, however many people you want, four or five. Who's there? What are you talking about? What's the conversation? And what I'm assuming you're cooking. What are you, yeah, what are we eating? Good. Um, let's see here. So I'd probably invite Bob Goff and his wife, Mar- Sweet Maria. I don't know them. I only know them through emails and like that. I'd probably invite Erwin McManus and Kim because I just, anything he says, I want to write down. He's just such a forward thinking person, always creating newly. And I love like the newness. I love things that you think about things you've never thought before. 
I'd probably invite, let's see, who else would I just love to, I mean, I'd probably add some people to that dinner party that would never sit down with those people, you know, because I think I love those conversations where someone's having a conversation and another person's never even thought of it. I'd probably invite Dave and Donna from my local church here. Just, I think they would be amazing and it would be an interesting, I love conversations that have friction and, and inspiration. And I invite, I mean, my husband, my husband would be there. Maybe my son, Carrie and his wife, Amber, who's here, you've met her on the farm. She like, loves conflicting conversations. And maybe my ex-husband and his wife, John and Sylvia. That would be that would be a great party. What'd you make? Well I would serve our farm wine and cheese. And I'd well it's winter, so I would serve butternut squash because that's what we have right now a lot of. I would make that ice cream oh my again. God. And if people were eating meat, then we'd probably cook some meat in the wood-fired stove. And if they're not eating meat, then we'd probably do homemade pasta and pesto. And then a really good salad with sunflower sprouts. So the name of this podcast is Let It Out, as uh-huh. you know. So did I squeeze you for all your juice? Is there oh, anything that you great. didn't get to talk about that you wish you would have gotten to talk about? No. I think the only thing I would end with is... I think it's important for people to realize that like disappointments or heartbreaks are also rich places for new opportunities and growth and development and holding the tension between those so that you don't like go into, you know, the heartbreak, sorrow, loss side of it, but you actually kind of balance it out with the opportunity that it's presenting is important. So we end with a deep breath, letting it out together. Oh, got it. So are you ready to do it with me? I'm ready. Okay. Inhale. Let it out. (sighs) Always feels a little better, right? (laughs) So good. Thank you so much for doing this. You're wonderful. Thank you. So amazing to meet you in person Mm. and super grateful for this opportunity. Me too. Okay. That was my episode with Tiercy. If you are listening all the way to the end, thank you. I know it was a long one because she's a really robust person who's just lived, obviously, you just heard so many lives from being a flight attendant to being a mother to living on the farm to Cafe Gratitude. It's just a lot. And she is such a beautiful person inside and out. And I'm still craving her sourdough bread and that ice cream we talked about. And anyway, she's really just a gem. So... This week's emoji, I think, is going to be the ice cream cone. We've probably used that before. I I feel like we've probably used that before. So maybe the dish of ice cream? You can use either one. But comment that on her Instagram and my Instagram and let us know that you're listening all the way to the end. Also, I want to tell you about what I've been working on in Bali. You know all about the Soothe Kit, obviously, for breakups, but I wanted to make something else and I made something called the Solve Kit, which is a workshop for navigating moving on, letting go of a breakup, learning everything you can learn and 
it's basically everything I've learned in the last six months put into a container and special interviews that I've done with other people. And I'm really proud of it. It's really for when your heart is tender, but you're ready to move on and you've soothed yourself. So now you can start solving. This is the Soothe Kit is a prerequisite to this workshop, but if you've done the Soothe Kit or you want to do the Soothe Kit, do the Soothe Kit. You can do it for free. And then the Solve Kit is there for you. It's available. And I think you guys will really like it. I had a really great time making it. So, well, it was emotional a little bit making it, but I'm really proud of it. I'm proud of the conversations that I had during it. I'm proud of all the research that I did for it. It's a big culmination of everything that I found useful. And I really am excited to share it and create community around it. So the link is in the show notes if you want to be part of it. I would love to have you. This week's episode is brought to you by Cured Nutrition, a holistic supplement company based in Boulder, Colorado. And if you're like me, liking organic hemp-derived CBD products, I'm sure you're already familiar with them. They make these full-spectrum tinctures and treats that work with your body's natural systems to produce clear benefits without the worry of the psychoactive component. They have this really great in-house farm-to-table business model, and I got to meet them when I was in Boulder, Colorado, and they're just really lovely people. CBD is most commonly incorporated to help improve sleep, decrease inflammation, it can help reduce the stress load. And the CEO of Cured actually used the raw oil to ease his puppy's anxiety. So you can actually use these products with dogs as well. They even have dog treats and and nibbles for dogs as well. I love this company. Their cookie dough snack is one of my favorites and they're really just wonderful people. Each cured product is third-party tested for potency and purity, and it doesn't have any of the harmful contaminants like pesticides or heavy metals. And they even have all of their ingredients with full transparency published on their website. So the link's in the show notes. And if you want to try them out, again, they can help with sleep and anxiety and inflammation. And I just, I really enjoy the variety of products they have. They have so many things. They have topical things. They have mushroom blends. They have a nootropic. They have a nighttime blend that I really like. They have, of course, their oils and tinctures and they have a mint flavor. I really like their snacks and their gel caps, they're, they just really, they got, all, they got everything. So if you want to try them, you can get 15% off your order by using the code let it out at checkout. Again, that's 15% off your order using the code let it out. I love you. I'm so grateful for you. Thank you for listening. If you love this podcast, share it, send it to someone you think would like it. Leave us a review and a rating, and I will talk to you next week. And in the meantime, send me that emoji. I really would love to talk to you over Instagram. I'll be back. I took a week off Instagram, which has been really nice. But by the time you're hearing this, I'll probably be back because, you know, I'm a little bit addicted. 